You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and today we're joined by Ebony Harris. She's a licensed professional clinical counselor in Houston, Texas. She's a relationship coach and the co-founder of Melanin and Mental Health. And it was really important for us to connect with Ebony, not only because she's going to be a speaker at our Therapy Reimagined 2018 conference, but Katie and I bring a whole lot of being white to this show. <laughs> and in kind of being cognizant of that and really embracing the aspects of diversity, there's a, a lot of conversations out there that Katie and I love to be a part of, but aren't necessarily from our own personal experiences, able to bring in how that interplays into not only our hashtag therapy movement, but into the way that that interacts with clients and the mental health system. So thank you very much for joining us today, Ebony. Of course. I appreciate the invitation. We're so excited to have you. I love what you're doing with Melanin and Mental Health, and I'm so excited that you're coming out to be with us at the conference. I mean, we were just so honored that you're willing to join us in this hashtag therapy movement. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm gushing. So anyway, <laughs> um, as always, uh, the first question is always, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? So I'm Ebony Harris. I am a relationship therapist. I'm a licensed professional counselor and a licensed marriage and family therapist in Texas. I'm also co-founder of Melanin Mental Health, um, which is an organization that focuses on reducing the stigma of uh, mental health in minority communities, specifically Black and Latinx communities, as well as we want to make sure that we're developing clinicians of color to be able to serve those communities. And so that is our goal. Our tagline is therapy is dope when you have a dope therapist and it's all about just making sure making therapy more accessible to those communities i'm also founder slash host of room for relations which is a podcast a sex and relationship podcast where we discuss everything from the first date to the last orgasm nice i love all of that <laughs> so uh therapy is dope when you have a dope therapist i love that i think that's awesome what led to the creation of melanin mental health so it started with me and Elisa just following each other across social media, um, kind of liking each other's style because we were it wasn't a lot of therapists on social media at that point. And it was a lot of just trying to figure out how can we use it? Because I feel like there's so much restriction when it comes to our licenses and stuff like that. So how can you use, use social media for personal and professional gain? Started following each other and then it was like, hey, let's meet up for lunch, just like all therapists do. <laughs> and so we <laughs> sat down and talked. And it's funny because when we started following each other, I wasn't sure of her ethnicity. I wasn't sure if she was black or what. So when we met, like the conversation surrounded like her being a Latina, me being a black clinician and just like our experiences. And the fact that we do get a lot of clients that call us and for the most part it's because you look like me you know like I feel comfortable if nothing mm -hmm. else we have that connection but I don't work with kids neither one of us take insurance and so we started having a discussion of like who do you refer to and how do you refer when you know that one of the main reasons they came to you is because of the color of the skin and how do we decide who can take care of these clients and or if the client even feels comfortable going to a white clinician and so that became a whole conversation um, that we continued with our many lunch meetings that we had after that. And so at the beginning of 2017, Elisa, just because she, the story is she was in the shower and melanin and mental health popped in her head and <laughs> she had made a vow that in 2017, she was going to follow whatever direction came to her. And so she created social media for melanin and mental health. And her goal was just to put out information 
without a lot of psychological jargon, just kind of normalizing mental health and putting it in ways that would be more appealing to brown and black communities. And so at that same time, me and her were talking about like, how do we do like a little meetup so she can meet some of the clinicians I know and I can meet some of the clinicians she knows. And we finally picked a date after like months of discussing this. And I was like, well, can I put it in the Melanin Mental Health group just to invite other clinicians? And so that first meetup, we had about 30 clinicians show up. Like it was like we put up the invitation wow. the week before and like 30 people came out and was like, what is this? What are y'all doing? We want to be a part of it. And it was just a really good vibe. Like we got to just talk about our experiences. Of course, as clinicians, everybody introduced themselves and what do they do? And then of course, everybody's like, okay, give me your card. I need that. I have a client or, you know, I have people that call me that need this and da, da, da. And so then right after that, Elisa like texted me and was like, we need to meet. So we met like next week and was like, okay, what is this? And what are we doing with it? Because I have been talking about doing a directory forever. Like, oh my God, it'd be great if we had like a brown directory where, you know, you can go and just see a lot of brown faces as opposed yeah. to having to scroll through psychology today and find and figure out if this person is for you. And so that's kind of what happened. Like we sat down and talked and basically like charted out what it would look like and started from there, just trying to develop melanin and mental health into a business. And so it's definitely shifted and changed over the last year. It's only been about a year. We, I think our first happy hour was in May of 2017 and the directory started in August. So it's been just about a year that we've been doing it and it's been amazing. It has been amazing. And I, I know just from my experiences of working with therapists of color in advocacy that people like you are doing a tremendous service to not only bringing mental health awareness out to the public, but really pushing the conversations within the mental health community mm -hmm. about not just treating clients of ethnic backgrounds or non-white backgrounds, but also mm -hmm. in pushing for professional recognition of right. clinicians of a variety of backgrounds. And this is both as conference speakers needing a representation of people mm -hmm. from a variety of backgrounds, recognizing that clinicians' needs are different. And also in the representations in some of the, the professional magazines. I, I know that yeah. the Psychology Today mm -hmm. magazine has been under a lot of controversy because of their misrepresentation of this. Right. It's hard enough, I imagine, to get into this profession as a person of color. Mm -hmm. Tell us what it's like to stick your neck out even further and, and to continue <laughs> this and push this conversation. It's been interesting. Of course, we've, we've gotten a ton of support from all clinician and clinicians, white, non-white. It's been amazing. Mm -hmm. And so that's been very positive in that we know that there's a need. We, we know that one yeah. based on the people that are, as soon as they see us, they're like, what is this? How do I get involved? How do I help? What do I need to do? You know, so we know that there's a need and, and we're trying to make sure we feel that need. But we have definitely had people that don't get it and have been vocal about not getting it. Not too much. <laughs> Very fortunate that it hasn't been a lot, but even at conferences. So I started once to conferences around the Houston area just to sell our shirts. Like we have shirts that say therapy is dope, um, melanated therapist, uh, melanated health, just things like that. Uh, yeah. dope therapy. Dope therapist is the one that gets the most attention, right? Because it yeah. says dope therapist. And so the first thing people are like, well, dope is drugs. So what are you saying? <laughs> Why would you even wear a shirt like that? And I'm like, well, this is a word that's used a lot within our communities. Like dope is a, and mm -hmm. within a lot of communities, let me just say that, that when people are so confused about it, <laughs> like this, dope has been around for a long time. Like oh, I'm yeah. 30 something and I've been using dope since I was a kid. So it's been a while for a minute. 
but stuff like that where people are like, well, I don't, I don't even understand why you would even sell that. Like that's, that's kind of given a bad connotation and, or a bad name or, you know, those conversations have been, um, interesting. It hasn't been directed at me, but like I said, at those conferences, I'll have somebody come back and be like, yeah, I was wearing your shirt. And like somebody came up to me and was like, why would you even wear that? Why would you want people to think that you're a dope therapist? And da, 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 da. And so that kind of proves that just because you don't get it doesn't mean it's not valid. And it, it helps the other, the ones that do like the shirt and that enjoy the, the sayings that we put on our shirts and, and the funny things that we have going on. It helps them feel included in a conversation that they're not always included in. And, and so there is a space for brown clinicians to, to feel accepted in, in, this, in this area. Along with that, we um, recently did a, a really amazing town hall meeting with other brown clinicians that are also speaking up about mental health and minority communities. They have their own businesses and things like that. And we had a clinician that got on there and was like, why do you think we need this? Like, why do you think white clinicians need this? We all took a culturally comp- cultural competency class. Mm. And so you need to, ch- they basically told us we needed to reword everything that we had on there and that we needed to go back and check what classes people take because it's not necessary for white clinicians to be a part of this conversation. So, Wow. <laughs> That was, and, and it's funny because a lot of the stuff that we've done, we we haven't necessarily directed it at white clinicians, right? This is about us feeling, having a space that we feel included, that we can have certain conversations. But the conversation for that town hall was, how do we include white clinicians? Because we, we understand that the majority of clinicians are white. And so we're not always going to have that space to be able to refer our clients to black and brown therapists. And, and I know some very dope white clinicians, like I just do. And so, <laughs> I'm okay with referring to them. So then how do we have this conversation with certain clinicians about like, hey, these are the struggles that our clients are having. Uh, this is some areas that may need to be improved upon. Like how do we have, and, and she was one of those people that was just not interested in it. But we, like I said, we know plenty of other ones that would love to have that conversation and talk about it. So that's kind of, like kind of the backlash where it turns into, it. I think they feel like we're attacking them yeah. and their ability to be therapists. And that's not the goal at all. Like we're just saying that there are some, sometimes our needs aren't being met. And we've heard too many stories of brown clinicians that have had experiences, whether the clinician was white, black, Latin or whatever, that if, if the therapist had had a little bit more cultural awareness, it wouldn't have went that way. You know, so yes, we get the good, but we also get some bad with it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I I think it's, I mean, it's, these are the uncomfortable conversations that we need to have that we're having as a society and that continue to have a lot of divisiveness. And, and I don't know what the right word is. I think just people get so defensive because they're wrongly, I believe, feeling attacked. And I, and I think it's so powerful to me that you keep stepping forward and having the conversations and having it in such a thoughtful way. I think to me, what what I'm really curious about with this is because it's it's so evident to me from what you're talking about, but also my experiences kind of roaming through the world, that there's a lot of stuff that either white clinicians or clinicians of color who don't have potentially the training and the cultural humility, cultural competence, that kind of stuff that's going on, that we do a lot of things wrong. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff that can go that can go on that really harm that increase mental health stigma, that increase the fear of, of the mental health, you know, system, that that there's just so much that can go wrong when we don't really when we're not aware of of what's the, these dynamics. And so I guess right. long-winded way to say what do you think that therapists typically get wrong around this? Because I think it's, it's important. And, and maybe this is, you know, like 
a five day training, but, (laughs) (laughs) but I think, you know, kind of individual clinicians who are, who are, you know, kind of coming with a good heart, but maybe have some ignorance around this stuff. What, what are the things that you see most commonly that they do wrong? The, the biggest, and this is probably the most common thing is the the dismissing of race. Like we don't need to talk about that. Mm -hmm. Right. So, you know, if, if I come in as a, as a client and I'm speaking about, I had a situation at work and something that a lot of brown people struggle with is, was this race related or not? Right. Cause it might mm-hmm. not have been. And we, we understand that, but sometimes it is. And so that struggle of like, you don't want to always relate everything to race, but there are some things where it's like, but when it look, when I look at it in this way, it looks like it could be related to that. Da, da, da. And so when someone dismisses it and says like, you talk about race too much, the great, I don't see color. Um, oh dear. <laughs> the, you know, the, those type of statements that kind of dismisses your, your experiences, even if it could be, because a lot of times what clinicians tend to do is we'll talk about it. We'll talk about, you know, um, what it could be, what it could, you know, it may, it may not be, um, talk about your experiences specifically and, and what does it mean if it was, or if it wasn't, you know, as opposed to just completely dismissing it. And we don't need to talk about that, which shows more of your discomfort with it. Then you're truly trying to help me as a, as a clinician. So that's a big one is feeling like my identity as a black woman or as a black man or even LGBT, you know, yeah. my identity does not matter in the therapy office. Along with that, uh, there's also, you know, some things where if you have been, and this is, this is cultural, but it's also classism and it's, all, it's you know, it's so much to, to take in, but certain expectations of the clients of what even when it comes to like homework or when we're trying to give them feedback, how are you taking into consideration the culture and, and how that may impact them or the decisions they make, you know, when we're raising these cultures where we have to take care of our families, our families are really big, right? Are important mm-hmm. to us or religion or all those things. Like how much information do you have about this so that you can have a very knowledgeable conversation um, when it comes to the decisions that they have to make or they feel like they don't have a choice in, even though, we know everyone has choices. Sometimes when you're raised in certain environments, you don't see that choice. Those things, and then of course, there are situations where there's microaggressions, when we're talking about the, the hair situation, or you know, why wouldn't you just straighten your hair for work, like to, to smooth over everything, or something like that. Like it, it can be a lot. It can be a lot that happens that you may not even recognize it as even the client in the moment may just be like, okay, maybe it's not that big of a deal. And then later on, they're like, well, that made me feel really bad. And if I'm talking to a friend or someone else about this, their perspective is different because they went through it, you know, and and you don't have to go through things to be aware and to be helpful in that situation. You just have to understand that you don't have certain experiences. And if you, and I know a lot of clinicians say this, if you come from a place of curiosity, as opposed to what are my belief system, it will solve a lot of, a lot of the issues within therapy. I'm trying to build off of that without just like jumping to the next question, but that was just kind of one of those like mic drop sort of things about our entire profession. Right. And I think that's, that's the struggle because as a clinician, I feel like I know, and, and I'm very big on like, if I'm not well equipped as opposed to referring out, I'm going to try to learn more. I think a lot of times what we do as clinicians is like, okay, I'll just refer out. 
But when it, um, I know I have someone I follow on Instagram and she posted about the fact that like a lot of white clinicians will refer out teenage minority kids, right? Because, oh, I don't have enough experience with that. But the problem is there aren't enough brown clinicians. So who are you referring them to? Yeah. So referring out, these people are still not getting the services that they deserve. So as opposed to referring out, why don't you do your own work to be able to serve them better? So yeah, so it, it, I think if we can just continue to work at being a good clinician, just like we do with everything else, but then identifying that this is another area that we also need to work at being a good clinician, yeah. meaning I need to make sure that I'm not causing more damage, understanding that a lot of times when minorities go to, especially, um, I'm speaking specifically for Black and Latinx because that's who we work with a lot, yeah. but um, especially in those communities, for me to come to therapy means I might be defying a lot of people in my life because they may not believe in therapy. So yeah. I'm already pushing against, you know, our community to do this. And then when I get here and I feel like, oh, was it even worth it? Because they were right. They don't get me. Or they were right. They did make me feel like my issues aren't that big of a deal or whatever the case may be. Or I was dismissed. You know, mm-hmm. is that is that really helping? I think that this is not only present in the conversations that we're having now, but also just in training clinicians from the beginning, that there is obstacles that are in the way for a a lot of people. You you bring up class, you bring up ethnic backgrounds. What kind of obstacles are you seeing as a clinician coming from these backgrounds that rich white people in in grad school might not recognize (laughs) are happening or institutionally are are getting in the way. Right. Um, There's a lot. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is part one of seven. (laughs) I'll be back, guys. I'll be back. No, No, it's it's a lot. So one of the biggest things, kind of what I just said, is that um, the, the practice of therapy or the systems that are within therapy kind of clash some community beliefs that we have. So minority communities are all about what happens with it is what happens within the family stays within the family, right? That's mm-hmm. the first thing you learn as a kid. And then what happens within the community stays within the community, right? So you don't go to your white doctor, even doctors, medical professionals, you don't tell them everything that you have going on because it's fears of you can get horrible news. Um, they may not understand. And there has been a history of when we confide in non-minorities, we get some type of authorities put into our lives where, you know, mm-hmm. if I am saying that every, my friend gave me this amazing example, if I'm t- telling my teacher every day when my mom combs my hair, I cry every day and she doesn't stop. She combs it every single day and every single day I cry. For someone who has never experienced a natural hair <laughs> situation, yeah. you may not, every little black girl has had this experience. It's really hard to comb natural hair sometimes. And so, or, I mean, I guess if you have kids, most kids don't like getting their hair home. Let's start there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it can be a painful experience, but if, if as a teacher who has never, or a therapist or whoever has never experienced this, they're thinking you are causing harm to your child. Your child is not like this. We need to get CPS to check this out and see what's going on. Right. Yeah. So now CPS is in my life, which means I now not, don't trust people of authority uh, yeah. because they might do that. Um, the same with, being sent to a mental hospital. A lot of people of color believe that one, you only go to therapy if you have some extreme mental illnesses. Um, And if you do, they will send you to a mental hospital. It may be because I said some things and I didn't explain it well enough, but they didn't get it because they don't have the same background as me. And so that means I could be sent to a hospital. It's that fear is there. So I think that's a big part of it. Just they don't go together always as far as like, you want me to come in and sit here and tell you about my life story 
But I've been taught that we have to keep that private and keep that amongst ourselves because you just never know what how that person will take that and what could happen if you do. Um, along with that, you know, of course, we could talk about access and just awareness of the options mm-hmm. as far as when it comes to mental health and healing. Um, a lot of times, like I said, the thought is you the thought about therapy is that this is what white people do, first off, because as black yeah. people, how people were supposed to be able to handle these issues. Our ancestors went through slavery and all these other horrific things. If you can't handle the stress of life, then you're not strong enough. But even knowing whether or not there are therapists around you and how do you even find a therapist and how do you, you know, what kind, how do I pay for therapy, right? If I decide I want to go to therapy, as far as I know, based on TV therapy costs $300 an hour. How do I pay for that, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. A lot of people don't know about their mental health insurance or anything like that. What else there is? Well, before you kind of dig it, I want to respond to some of that because it's just so juicy. I mean, the first thing is, is the tendency of white therapists, I think young therapists, um, uninformed therapists to kind of go to that level of including authorities in the conversation in therapy. I, I, I just had this, you know, kind of insight that popped in. And I think part of it was, I I don't know if you know, I was a a mental health director person in South Los Angeles doing mental health services. And one of the things I had to do when I was interviewing clinicians was identify if they could actually kind of do the work in a a culturally responsive way, but also in a way that was going to be mentally, you know, kind of support the mental health of the community. And one of the questions I asked was, if this happens, and it was like a crisis situation, what's your response? And, you know, the other directors and I were talking about it. And if they said, call the police, call DCFS, and that was their first response, we we weren't going to hire them because it was something where you have to respond first as an individual. Mm -hmm. But in really exploring that, there was a lot of fear and discomfort and wanting to follow the rules. And so there's, there's that piece of being able to really open the conversations and get kind of into some uncomfortable spaces where you really try to explore. I like the idea of, you know, kind of going into curiosity and really digging into what's actually happening here. The, the, the example was kind of someone saying, you know, my, my grandson just got back from running away. He's going to get it. He's going to get it. And you hang up the phone and it's like, what do you do? And some people are like, I'm going to call the police. And it's like, no, like there's an upset grandmother. Right. Who's like, whose grandson just came in and like, how do you, how do you manage that? And, and I always tell the people who I'm training how to interview, I'm like, like respond first as a human being, not a member of the establishment, like call back, call Mm -hmm. back and say, Hey, you got this. Do you need my help? Like what's going on? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think, I think it can be so hard because there's so many pieces. And so to me, the, the type of, of trainings that you guys have with melanin mental health and the conversations that you're opening up are so important because, you know, there is access for mental health services if people know about it, right? There, there are things that are happening, but if we don't have the clinicians to hire or the, the clinicians with the skill sets to support all types of clients, it doesn't matter that we have access right? <laughs> because right. they're not getting solid mental health services. So to me, that was, that just was like, oh, you know, like it just to kind of put the pieces together for me when you were saying that. I think it's, I think it's so important. And I think access is such a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, to me, I've, I've heard so many stories of, of unfilled therapist positions. And then I also hear the other side of all these therapists who are like, I don't have a job. And it's like, well, you need to get the skill set so that you can get hired into these jobs that serve really underserved communities. I mean, it's powerful work. But anyway, so that was, that was just one thought I had. <laughs> no, yeah, I appreciate that. And I think that's, that's important. Um, like you said, that that snap reaction to to call the police, and and I think people don't always understand the impact that that has. Yeah, 
go directly to authorities because unfortunately within those systems, we also are not the safest. And so yeah. uh, if you're quick to call the police or call CPS, minority families lose their children at much higher rates than, yeah. you know, other uh, other than, uh, than white, you know, parents. And so I think that you have to be aware that when you automatically go to that level of let me get these systems or, or institutions involved, like what impact that has on that family and on that community, like it's, it's not, and on their ability to trust. Cause I, I, I worked with CPS for a while um, where I was doing therapy for the, um, the adults that were in the system. And it's so much distrust. It's so much wow. like there's, even me, when I'm telling them, like, I, yes, I'm doing this for CPS, but I am your clinician. They were like, no, like you work with them. And so that means whatever I tell you, you're going to report back and you're going to stop me from getting my kids. And this was based on somebody heard something or a teacher heard something. And this is how I got in this situation. So I don't feel comfortable talking to you. So, yeah, I don't think people understand the impact when, when they do. I, and I get it. I, mm, that's another topic. I get it. I get that we are taught that the police and CPS and all those people are there to help us. We are taught that as kids. We were taught the same thing. But as we grow up, we start to mind that that's not always the case. Yeah. I think that having been initially in, in my training, having initially been a part of these conversations as a as a white therapist, that mm-hmm. and and I understand this differently now, and I'll get to where I'm at now with this, but. Mm-hmm. I think especially for people coming from white backgrounds, suburban backgrounds, where uh, I came from a rural background, moved to the big city of L.A. to go to grad school. But I think initially, much like we're seeing in the broader conversations around race relations in our country right now, that there's a couple of different reactions. One is kind of like the, well, I don't experience this. I'm not part of the problem. And kind of dismissing it based on like, I'm, I'm I'm not overtly racist, so this. Why do I need to be a part of this conversation? Right. And really, the growth that's come through actually getting past that in a lot of the early conversations that I've had in this, and uh, that I see with other clinicians too, is that we're almost a bigger part of the problem than the people who are overtly racist because it's just sidestepping this altogether. And that as white clinicians or clinicians who are more a, you know, moving things or getting involved in legislative aspects or policy aspects, that if we aren't joining this conversation, that we are actually an obstacle to. And that it's, you know, being passive can brush this stuff under the rug even more so than having something firm to push back against as far as saying, you know, this conference doesn't have enough clinicians of color on, on their faculty, but joining the conversation and really being able to embrace that, well, you might not be doing something actively to create these problems, that you can do something actively to help support them. Right. I think that's amazing just the way you worded it, because when it comes down to it, a lot of times white clinicians or just in general, white people have more different type of access. I'll say that than we have. Right. Mm-hmm. So I can, I can all day say that, Hey, look at your conference and look at who you have speaking and look at who the top people, you know, that you are invited to these conferences and look at what they look like. And then you're confused as to why you're not getting such a diverse crowd. I can, I can say, you know, I can, I can bring up these issues, but as a minority, a, 
not all the time, but a lot of times it just comes across as complaining, right? Or you're yeah. just, it's not me. Well, if y'all would do this or if, if you would do it this way, then it would be better as opposed to like someone who is an ally, right? That um, if you are in that space, you have more more influence than I would. And so taking that opportunity to speak up and say like, hey, this does kind of look messed up that Psychology Today has never had a black person on the cover. You know, yeah. if you could say that being a white person, then they're one, because you're in the space that we might not even be in yet. Yeah. And two, it, it, it comes across differently and it is not so much of a complaint or so much of, oh, it's always a problem. Race is always an issue and more, it can be more of a conversation because of the access that you do have. Yeah, I think it's something, and I, I know that there's a famous Martin Luther King quote that I saw uh, one of my uh, mentors had had put this up in his office, but just kind of that silence is is kind of being complicit in a lot of ways if you don't speak up, you know, and I, he said it obviously way more eloquently than I'm saying right now, but, <laughs> But it's this idea that if you remain silent, you know, and if you don't do anything, that's that's as bad as as kind of what is overtly happening. And I think for me, really trying to to step into that, I know that I I'm not always able to to see when I'm not doing it well. And and I think it's something where being able to have the conversations and and see where we have access that may not uh, others may not have, where we have privilege that others don't have. And I think being able to kind of wield that to change the situation and to really find new avenues to support all people, people of color, people of all genders, people of all different types of backgrounds and saying, how do we continue to grow as a profession and support more people in better, stronger ways? And I think to me, part of that conversation is is looking to you and saying, what do you think needs to be fixed in our system? Like if, if you had a magic wand, let's do the miracle question, okay. you know, and we woke up tomorrow and we, it was all better. Well, how would right. we, I think really like, what, what do you see as the, the kind of the primary things where we need to be focusing our attention? I think that um, a big, a big issue is the restrictions that we have when it comes to healing, as far as what we can and can't do. The, the way that we currently, the, the system as it is right now, yes, it works and, and we know it can work, but it was, and this is a conversation we've had a lot lately, it wasn't necessarily built with minorities in mind. I mean, the system was pretty much built so that white women would stop like <laughs> complaining to their husbands. Or something. Stop on, or something. Yeah, stop getting, on their <laughs> yeah, exactly. stop getting on their husband's nerves or something. But um, so it wasn't really built um, to help minorities. And so how do we change it so that, why do we keep trying to use the same system to, to fix a different type of problem? If that mm-hmm. makes sense, you know, the, the, the round hole with the square pig, why are we doing that? So why can't we open up a little bit of what that looks like? Because it may not work so well with, we're in a, in a therapy office and across from each other, but it may work better if I can go and play a sport or if we can go for a walk in a neighborhood, if, you know, but then we have to talk about confidentiality and all those, you know, those things. Mm-hmm. So if we could think of ways to, to change, and I think that's why a lot of people end up getting out of therapy per se and do move into like coaching and that type yeah. of stuff, have a lot more flexibility on how you can help people. And so if we can really look at like, does it have to look this way for everyone? Or can we look at that? Can we figure out what works for different communities and how can you have these different modalities that are more successful treatment, you know, 
treatment for these different communities. Um, I think that's definitely a big one. And I, and I think it's, it goes back to kind of what we've been talking about, the responsibility of everyone to kind of learn more about themselves as far as like how they view these different communities and then understanding that, you know, I bias to show up. Everybody's does. Mine does. You know, I am all for getting more cultural competency on working with black clients because I haven't had every black experience. Like that's just what it is. And so I need to make sure that I'm continuing to educate myself and I'm continuing to learn more about these communities that need serving, not just the communities that you want to serve, right? Because I feel like that's what we do, right? We focus on, I only want to work with this type of client, and so that's it. But then we're leaving out so many people. And in knowing that these these communities need the services, how do I also make sure that I'm well-equipped to help to work with those communities as well? So I would say those two things. We need to be a little bit more flexible about what healing looks like and then making sure that we take responsibility, responsibility as clinicians. And I think that there should also be kind of an expectation laid out to clinicians in training that you're going to be expected to continue to learn, not just through continuing education, but Mm -hmm. the growth in yourself is really one narcissistic injury after another. Being able to embrace that you're going to run into these limitations of knowledge or experiences and Mm -hmm. that it's about listening rather than about shutting down and just sticking to the path that you're familiar and comfortable with. Definitely. I I was, I was so blessed with my um, supervisor when I was an intern and practicum student because I I feel like I have worked with every single community. to get this experience like yeah because I've known I want to work with couples that's what I always wanted to do but she's like no we're not just going to only give you couples you need to work with all these different communities you yeah. need to work in all these different capacities because if nothing else you need to learn because even if you don't want to work with kids you have parents you know that that yeah. need help with the relationship and working with kids and you know so just making sure that you are continuing to expose yourself and continuing to learn from this point even once you get into your niche you still need to be continuing to learn for the rest of your career, which is the point of the CEUs, not just to take them and then, you know, turn them in, take whatever is given to you and turn them in without really learning. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's more than a checkbox. And (laughs) that's, I mean, that's why we're, we're so excited to have you on and we're excited to, to connect with you and have you at our conference this year. And, uh, and so I know there's a lot of, uh, therapists of color and others who, and allies who would love to connect with you. You have your, your directory, you've got Melanin Mental Health that has all these different assets. How do, how do people find you? How do people connect? So definitely you can head to melaninandmentalhealth.com. That's where the directory is. We sell lots of dope shirts. Um, <laughs> and we also are start, we're getting more into like online webinars. So we have one coming up about um, why do couples avoid talking about sexuality and how counselors can bridge that gap. So Melanin and Mental Health is a good place to start. And then, of course, across social media, we are Melanin and Mental Health and Melanin Health on Twitter. Nice. And we'll include links to all of that and a couple of things that we referenced uh, in in our show notes. You can find those on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. One thing that we are going to include is on this idea of psychology today and their representations. There's a petition that's been going around for quite a while. Katie and I are very much in support of the idea behind this and are so proud to be allies in in the work uh, of being able to really embrace the diversity of this. And I will say that with putting on our Therapy Reimagined conference, that it wasn't that we set out to say, hey, we're going to hold a a diverse conference, but we had listened to some of the feedback at other conferences that we'd had been 
to and really decided that we want diversity here. And just even having faculty of our conference who don't look like old white men, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we have had a, a tremendous response of, we're coming because you have faculty of color. We're coming, I don't even know if they know what each of you are talking about, but just that, <laughs> that we have pictures of, of clinicians of color in, in our marketing materials has really had a very positive feedback from from the community that we've reached so far. So we do really stand behind everything that Ebony has talked about here today. Um, these are things that we're incorporating into our lives, our practices, the conversations that we're having. We're so happy to have Ebony in our lives and uh, come and keep the conversation going. Join our hashtag therapy movement. The Therapy Reimagined Conference is October 5th and 6th in Los Angeles. Our platinum sponsor for that is Simple Practice. And until next time, I'm Kurt Whithelm with Katie Vernoy and Ebony Harris. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. 